John chapter 4, and today uh, we are continuing a passage that I looked at uh, three weeks ago, and beginning in chapter 4, verses 1 through 26, and uh, as we know that it was a very well-known passage of scripture regarding the Samaritan woman, and today I want to begin in verse 27 and following uh, through about verse 42 as we continue our uh, study and preaching through the Gospel of John. The title this morning that I would give this, this sermon is the ministry of reconciliation. And I get that that's a biblical title by the way. I get that from 1st John, I mean 1st uh, Corinthians in chapter 5. Actually, I misspoke. It is 2nd Corinthians chapter 5. And I I'll, I'll be I'll just read this for you here uh briefly. In Second uh, Corinthians five verse seventeen, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away; behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Would you just let that settle in? That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This ministry of reconciliation... You know, it won't get done if the church doesn't do it. You know, it won't get done if the church doesn't do it. It is given to us. This ministry of reconciliation, and it says in the very next verse that he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. And then we... See the focus in verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. Pleading. Think about it. God pleading? When He could be judging? But no, He's pleading. He's pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That is the fundamental condition of mankind is that we need to be reconciled to God. And, in, and we glory in the salvation of Almighty God. But listen, the church is given the work of reconciliation. The word of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation. And it is, as it were, God pleading through His people, be reconciled to God. Isn't that amazing? That God, who the world is so at odds with, has given to His children the means whereby the world can be reconciled to God. We have the term called evangelism. And... Truly, it is our work. It's not the world's work. 
The world doesn't do it. Sadly, the church largely is not doing it. But it is given to us. This work of reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation. I was struck Wednesday evening in our prayer group. There, there were, a, I believe, a number of prayer requests for our missionaries. And then following our prayer time, one of the brothers said, you know, missionaries are important. I was saved through the ministry of a missionary. And that, you know, that is a perspective that I don't have. I, I grew up in church. And it wasn't necessarily a missionary that spoke to me. But it was a brother who was willing to speak directly to me. And so today in our passage in John 4, we see none other than the Lord Jesus Christ about this work, this ministry of reconciliation. Last time I titled um, my message, Christ the Minister. And today I want to just simply title it, The Ministry of Reconciliation. Let's begin reading. I want to read our text first here in uh, John 4, beginning in verse 27. And at, that, and at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say, there are still four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the field, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I send you to reap, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. So today, as we begin this passage, as we begin in in this particular passage, it is at the end of Jesus' conversation with this Samaritan woman. And that is what we looked at the last time, of course, But it is the end of Jesus' personal interaction, I believe, with this woman from Samaria. Christ ended their dialogue with a momentous revelation. He clearly told her in verse 26 that he was the Christ. Jesus said to her, I speak to you, I who speak to you am he. And so while this marked the end of his interaction with the woman, it does not end Christ's encounter with the Samaritans and the um, resulting work that came out of that. 
Indeed, I, I believe verses 27 through 42 are, the text for us today, are kind of an explanation or a commentary on this encounter. It's, it's, it's kind of like we get to see why. We get to see what was going on that, that caused Jesus to interact and enter into this conversation with this woman. But something very important that I want to note is this truth that arches over this whole encounter. This whole episode. It shows us that the prominent thing on the Samaritan's mind, for instance, and, and may well be the clue as to their reception of Christ and the glorious outcome of, the, of his visit to their town. Think about it. The Samaritans received this person. The Samaritans received Christ. They, they heard him. They believed in him. Interesting that, that the reception is far different here than we see in other places. Uh, for instance, in, when uh, Jesus had been in Jerusalem, there were many people who believed in him, but Christ did not commit himself to them. The end of John chapter 2. And then he goes on into John chapter 3 where he speaks to Nicodemus and he makes the point that a man must be born again. And I think the ending of John 2 indicates, yes, a man must be born again because they're not receiving him. But here is a different story. Here's a different picture where the, the woman was receptive and then she runs to the town and tells them, Hey, consider this. Here's a man. Consider whether or not he might even be the Christ. And then they run out to him. Or I say they go, they, 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 it says they came to him. And when they heard him, they urged him to stay with them. For two days he stayed with them. And then many more believed. Interesting that there is a truth that I believe arches over this episode. And it begins with what he said about him. It's the identity of Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 26, or actually, she brings it up about knowing that Messiah is coming in verse 25. When he comes, he will teach us. It was, she said, I know that Messiah is coming. And then that was like it drew, it drew this confession or uh, acknowledgement out of Christ. Well, I who am speaking with you, I'm that one. Well, then she goes to the town and she says, consider, come and see, cons you consider whether this man might be the Christ. And then at the end of this interaction with the Samaritans, we see... Where they said in verse 42, now we believe, not because of what you said, referring to the woman, for we ourselves have heard him and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. You know, that, that, is, that is the kind of the overarching truth, that identity of who this man was that was sitting wearied at the well. Here we have that overarching thing. It seems like the, the, the Samaritans were, you know, they were waiting for this. So she brought it up and then it was her. Remember, as we talked last time about this somewhat disreputable woman. You know, she had all these men and she was all by herself coming to fetch water. She may well have been an outcast in an outcast society. We know that the Samaritans were considered as nothing by the Jewish people. And it may well be that she was considered as nothing among the Samaritans because of her reputation. And so she came with this witness, come and see the man who told me everything that I ever did. And this was, this was a very, uh, think about a very 
gentle way to introduce the suggestion. She would not have been so forward to say, I have found a Christ. No, she was, her reputation probably did not allow for that. It was rather a suggestion. This man told me everything about myself. Would you come and consider whether he might be the Christ? And it was, it, it was, a, it was in a very astute way, I believe, of her witnessing about who this man could be. Could this be the Christ? And then we, as I pointed out, they were, the Samaritans said, we know this indeed to be the Savior of the world. And this, of course, agrees with the Apostle's stated purpose for writing this book. As I have pointed out time and again, that in John 20, verse 31, he says, these things have I written. You know, as we look at the many, he says many things could have been written, but these things were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. And so this, this passage, and as they were dealing with this very thing, this identity of the Lord Jesus, that it was the very thing that John the Apostle was so intent in transferring to us that we are absolutely convinced that this Jesus we're reading about who was wearied and sat at the well and he was a hungered that he indeed was the Son of God and that he was indeed the Savior of the world. Do we believe that? And if we do believe that, we have life in his name. And so this is the gospel according to John. Today I want to consider verses 27 through 42 in three headings. As we look at this passage, number one I want to consider is the disciples' reaction to Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman. And then number two, I want to consider the Savior's explanation for this encounter. And then number three, the Samaritan's response to this encounter. I mean, all of us have been in situations where we uh, felt out of place. I think we have. We've all been in a situation where we felt that we don't really belong. And I wonder, as the disciples came back carrying their rucksack with their food in it, returning from maybe the village of Sychar to Jesus who, was, who had stayed behind and sitting at the well. I wonder if the reaction of the disciples when they seen Christ sitting there talking with the woman, if it was obvious to the woman. Do you think it was obvious to her that these disciples thought, you know, I'm wondering about this. I, I'm not sure about this. Because it says here in verse 27, as we look at this encounter and the disciples' reaction. This is, remember, the first time that the disciples were aware of her. They had already left to buy food when she came to the well to, to, to fetch water. And... At this point, sovereignly, notice the scripture makes a point about this. At this very point, after the revelation that Jesus had given of himself, it was only then that he allowed himself to be interrupted by the returning disciples. It seems like he makes a point of that. And verse 27 begins with that. At this point, they returned and it was then that he, they were, that Christ and this woman were interrupted. And these disciples looked around probably and said, what's going on? This word marveled simply means to wander. And so it was a wonder to them that he talked with a woman. You know, someone, someone has said that they would have been better served to wonder that Christ would talk to them. You know, it would have served them better if they would have humbled themselves and, and considered, well, how is it that I even get to journey with this man? But no, it was this woman. The wonder was that 
He was talking to a woman. Last time we noted the animosity between Jews and Samaritans. And as this woman also pointed out in verse, in verse 9 of this, of this um, encounter, she said, how is it that you being a Jew ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And interestingly, the quotation marks, are ex- they exclude that last sentence. It's almost like the Apostle John is making a point said, for Jews have no It's a commentary on what she said, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It's just common knowledge, you see. And she referred to that. But here, it is not so much that she's a Samaritan, rather that she is of the wrong sex. She is is a woman, and he is talking to her. Notice, as much as they wanted to, I'm sure, nobody questioned either him or her. Notice, he says, yet no one said to her, what do you seek? Or to him, why are you talking with her? They simply um, did not dare to question him. But to me, it stands out that it seems like it stood out to them as inappropriate, this conversation. I can imagine the disciples probably could see Jesus talking with her from a distance as they walked back from town, and they probably could see uh, quite a distance out to the well. And they were probably wondering, who is this woman? Who is this person that he is talking to? Scripture makes a point of their reaction. And really, all that we can really say about that, ultimately, is to note the contrast between their human inclinations and the divine actions of Christ. We can, we can because Scripture notes their reaction, we can only simply say there was a, a really a marked contrast between how Christ related to this woman, this, this quite disruptive, reputable woman who had this reputation of you know immorality and the disciples you know aversion to her that's about all we can really read into this is that there was a contrast between them and Christ as to how they related to her or how they would have liked to relate to her Seemingly, to both the woman and the disciples, this conversation with Christ did not represent social norms. It did not represent even even, uh, cultural or religious norms. It was outside of the box of normal interaction with somebody like this. So that is the reaction that we have from the disciples, and how we tend to be like them. Just how do we we tend to be like these disciples? We limit our ministry of reconciliation to those we deem fit to hear it. Instead of ministering because we have a mandate to minister, We pick and choose who we engage. I mean, don't we do that a lot? Oh, he is covered in tattoos. He's not interested. Or this, that, or whatever reason. We tend to not engage based on the mandate from Christ but rather on the societal or religious norms that, that, that are all around us. But the disciples were learning. They were learning to receive all who came. Remember how uh, in Mark 10, we have it in Mark 10, 13 and 14, how people were bringing their children to Christ. And the disciples were saying, 
No, 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 don't, don't, you can't come. Don't, don't bring the children. They are unworthy of the master's attention. That's basically what they were saying. But Christ, it says, he was, and now I forget the actual wording. It was a strong, it's a strong word. Let me, let me find it. Uh, in Mark 10, in verse 14, but when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased. And said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them, for if such is the kingdom of God. Right there you have a very similar action or reaction to what we see here in John. Is that there are certain segments of society that are not worthy of the master's attention. And these children being some of That was the disciples' uh, concept of reaching out and ministering in this work of ministry. Or you have Luke 9, in verse 49 and 50, where the disciples told Jesus, you know, we we met a man out in the village who was driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop. (laughs) And Christ said, don't do that. He will not soon speak evil of me who, who is doing this in my name. You know, for he who is for us is not against us. Or however that, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying it quite right, but Luke 9, uh, 50, 49 and 50 has that story. So you have these examples of the disciples not really uh, being on the same page as our Lord in this ministry of reconciliation. Now secondly, as we come to this, the second point, Jesus explains to his disciples what is going on? Jesus, the second point is the Savior's explanation of this encounter. As the woman leaves, his disciples urge him to eat. And what Christ said next, I think, highlights the difference between his actions and their reactions. He says, I have Food to eat of which you know not. I have something that sustains me that, that does not necessarily sustain you. We're not on the same page because there is a difference of, of, of what our priorities are. And so he says, I have food to eat of which you do not know, and they are confused. You know, they, they immediately go to the natural food, and he is speaking of a spiritual, meaningful uh, reason for his ministry. He explains that there are more important things to him than the necessary food. There's something that drives him that is more important than any earthly necessity. And what Christ is saying here in verse 34, he says, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. This is what motivated Christ is to do the will of him that sent him and to accomplish his father's work. This, Christ said, is my food. In Luke 19.10, he says this way. You don't have to turn here. It's a short line. Where this interaction with Zacchaeus. At the end of this interaction, in verse 9, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. This was the very work that Christ was sent to do, is to seek and to save. This was was what God sent him to do. Have Have we ever really considered that? That Almighty God, in His great love for sinners, sent His only Son to come and seek and save and to interact with the Samaritan woman. It was part of the plan. Actually, verse 34 is an example of the statement made in verse 23. 
verse 34 here where he says, this is my food is to do his will who sent me and to finish his work. What does it say in verse 23? But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such to worship him. See, that is exactly what Christ was doing. He was fulfilling that seeking mission that, that the Father was looking for people to worship Him. And now Christ is over here in verse 34 saying, that is what drives me. God is looking for people to worship Him. He is seeking them out. He sent me to do that very thing. To seek out people so that when they come to him, that they would ultimately worship his father in heaven. And Christ is saying, my food is to do this work. To get this accomplished. To to finish this work. So rather than let culture or social norms dictate, who he ministered to, Christ said, his Father's will regulated him. His Father's will regulated his ministry. What an example we have here also of Christ letting his ministry impact the timeline of his day. Listen, you know what I'm talking about. I'm too busy. I have too much on my plate today to stop and minister in this way. I have an agenda. I have a plan. I need to be somewhere tonight at this given time. I have this much work to do. And we simply forget that we have a sovereign God who has given us a ministry of reconciliation. That we should... Subjugate our timeline, our agenda, our plans, our finances, our businesses. Everything is on the cross for Christ. Everything is on the cross to fulfill this ministry. We see that so clearly in this passage for Jesus Christ, who is wearied. He's doing this ministry, wearied and hungry. And he's neglecting his food to interact with this woman. He, he has this desire, you see, to fulfill his work. That mission that was given to him. And how we have an example of him just letting his ministry dictate his day. You see. How far we fall short. How far I fall short of that of letting my greater work, you see, dictate how my day ends up, how much I get done. So, not only was Christ about this work, Not only was this the work he came for, he was ready for the work. But notice that the work was also ready for him. There was a sovereign preparation of of readiness for his his work to be profitable and and effective. He, He came into a situation that was ripe for harvest. It was a sovereignly prepared field. Notice what he says. He takes this analogy of a field ready for harvest and he points out that look, you're saying in four months there's harvest. Evidently the seed had just been sown. It takes about four months from seed to harvest on a maybe a barley crop or a, a wheat crop. You say there's four months to harvest. He says Look, behold, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white to harvest. Now is the time to 
Put your sickle in. Now is the appointed time. Today is the day of salvation. Reach in harvest for Christ. Harvest for the Lord. And we see that the work was ready for him. And spiritually speaking, the Samaritans were ripe for a gospel harvest. Their need was great. And now is the time of harvest. You know, we, we know that when it's time to harvest something, it's time to harvest. We don't wait a couple days. We, we don't put it off to next week. No, we, we get out there. If, it, if, if it's ready to harvest, we need to get out there. Whether it's your hay field that is just mature, just right, or whether your tomatoes are just right, or whether your wheat is just right, it doesn't wait for us. The harvest is now, the fields are white to harvest. Spiritually speaking, the Samaritans were as a white field ready for harvest. Their need was great. This passage brothers and sisters, comes to us with these words. Behold, stop and consider. You know, don't just march past on your, on your, uh, you know, your plans for your life. Don't just neglect. You know, no, he says, stop and consider. Behold, it's a strong word. Behold, he says. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white to harvest. And literally, if you think about it, if the disciples were to lift their eyes, they would have seen the approaching Samaritans. I think that may very well be kind of a picture of what he was saying. Pick up your eyes. Look up there and, and see these, these approaching Samaritans are a field ready for you to put your sickle in. And so as he explains what he was doing, he gives us these great motivations. I, w- I want to point out some great motivations that Christ gives to us in this passage for laboring for him. I want to begin on this thread here. And he who reaps receives wages. He who reaps receives wages. Interesting that these wages, he says... He who, receives, he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life. You know, you have an opportunity in your day-to-day life to do something that counts for eternity. You can put up a pole barn that will fall down in 50 years. Or... And and it's not wrong for you to do that. But can we subject our timeline with the interest and the recognition that we have a mandate to be reconciling people to God? We have been given the ministry of reconciliation. We're called to minister in this word of reconciliation. And so as we see Christ here, he's saying, he's giving us the motivation for us to get about this work. If you do this, you know, what does he say um, in teaching? I think in these, it's not the Sermon on the Mount, but in his teaching in the Gospels, he speaks about how we relate to money. If we, if we don't relate properly to money, how will he entrust to us the true riches? And what, I, what we basically have is an opportunity, even with our money, to, to make an investment for the, for the future, for an eternal future. Actually, it says if you reap, if you go about laboring for the Lord in this way, you are gathering in fruit unto eternal life. That, that there's going to be a blessing of fruitfulness in eternity because you have reached out and labored for Christ in this way. Interesting. 
interesting, wages with a benefits package that is completely outside of this world. Well, praise God for the rain. But it's, it's wages with a benefits package out of this world. A retirement account that lasts for eternity. Consider, as a believer, your eternity is secure. We, we, we operate from a place of security. We're, we're not laboring or reaping or entering into the work to somehow make sure that we, we have an eternity that's worth having. No, no, we, we, have an, we have an eternity that's secure as believers, as children of God. But as a reaper, you are laying up or depositing into an account that you will draw on for all of your eternity. Isn't that interesting that when you reap and work as a child of God for the kingdom of God, you are laying up into an account that you will draw on. It's called your reward. The whole doctrine of reward. It is not heaven. It is what you enjoy in heaven. Or one of the aspects of it. I'm not sure how that all looks like. But the teaching of the reward is clearly that there is something that we enjoy and that there are measures or degrees of reward. And he is saying, listen, he who reaps in this way, he will receive wages and he will be gathering in for eternity. And this is spoken Brothers and sisters, by God himself who said in James 5, he says about the rich. Remember what he said about the rich. He says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, listen, indeed the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just, he does not resist you. Then he says to the brothers, he said, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The coming of the one who, who is saying, the Lord of Sabaoth, he has seen how the rich exploit their employees. This man is saying, this, this God is saying to us, if you reap, you will receive wages. How truly, how, how right will his wage be to us? The one who condemned the rich for exploiting their employees who kept back by fraud the wages that the reapers were supposed to get. This same God is now telling us, you will receive wages and they will be, they will be right. He will not exploit his laborers. Praise God. He will not exploit his laborers, he will give wages. They gather fruit for eternal life. What an amaz amazing investment, brothers and sisters. You who had a debt that you could not pay, now you're being paid a wage that you can't overdraw. Isn't that incredible? You had a debt, no way to pay. Now you are employed by a, a your sovereign master and Lord who is willing to give you a wage that you don't deserve. And you can't outspend him. That's what he, this is the motivation that Christ is giving to us to enter into this ministry of reconciliation. 
He who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Praise God. We don't even deserve wages. Remember what the Lord said. After you've done everything that you're called to do, you're still still supposed to say, I'm an unprofitable servant. But no, he gives us wages. Rich wages. Incredible wages. A benefits package out of this, just, just beyond comprehension. And so... Your reaping could well be some sowers rejoicing. Consider that. Your reaping could well be some sowers rejoicing. Should we neglect to reap what others who have gone before us have sown? Should we be so lazy and disinclined to labor that those who have sown before us, they have invested in somebody and we're too lazy to reap? Proverbs has a word for us. Proverbs 10 verse 5 said, He who gathers in summer is a wise son. He who sleeps in harvest is a son who causes shame. He who sleeps in harvest. You know, many of our, many, I believe, of our brothers and sisters, maybe I have been sleeping in harvest. This is our harvest time, brothers. This is the time when we enter into this work. Verse 37, the seeds you sow, another may well reap. Notice what he says. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. One observation was made that rarely does someone sow and reap in the same field. Spiritually speaking. It's possible that you sow and you reap what you've sown. But faithfulness is what is called for. You sow. And your brother ten years later, or your sister ten years later, comes along and reaps what you've sown. And then there's rejoicing on both parties. You rejoice. She rejoices. But it's, it's this sowing and reaping is not necessarily done by the same person. It makes it clear here. One sows and a different one reaps. The harvest, for instance, that you've gathered may well have been planted by another. And humility and obedience are called for here, not necessarily bushels. Not necessarily a measurement of success, but simply humility and obedience. And this is by sovereign de- design. You did not decide the time of your life. You did not decide whether you live in a time of revival or a time of drought where the Word of God is scarce in the land. No, this is God's sovereign design when you were brought here and what, uh, what the times of your life will be like. But you're called to faithfulness, to labor. Notice what he says. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. You know, what a shame for, for us to say, you know, that in our generation we've refused to labor. There was a, there, somebody labored before us and, and Jesus sends us into the work. Others have labored and should it not behove us to enter into their labors? The, the seeds, for instance, these Samaritans, consider the seeds that... Jesus and his disciples were reaping from right here. They may well have been planted by Moses. Think about it. The Samaritans, they embraced the first five books of the Bible. 
But that, they, they, that's what they considered to be Scripture. The Samaritans did. They agreed with the Jews on the first five books. And from these first five books, they understood that there's a Messiah coming. That was a seed that was sown. Now, they, now Jesus Christ comes along many, many, many years later. This word that was written by Moses bore fruit in the time of Christ. We don't know if, if that is necessarily what he's referring to, but he's saying you are entering into the labors that others have labored, and now we are reaping their, uh, what they have sown. And it, as I said, it could very well be that the seeds that Moses planted were now bearing fruit many, many hundreds of years later. And obviously, not everything takes that long to come to maturity. But it was a work that others had planted. They were prepared for harvest. Very similarly, like John the Baptist went before the Lord preparing his way. So that when Christ came, that they would, uh, they would be ready to receive this, this work. Well, I want to go to this last portion where it says, where we consider the Samaritans' re- response to Christ's ministry. Let's start with this woman. Consider this woman. She left her work. She left her water pot. As it says in verse 28, the woman left her water pot. The very reason she came for it originally, she, she had, her, she had her, her day planned. She was going to come here and get water. She meets Christ. She leaves her water pot and went witnessing. That's exactly what she did. Her encounter with Christ was of such a profound impact on her that she immediately went and invited others to come and see. Now, just consider with me how, who this woman was. Her reputation preceded her. But still, her encounter with Christ was so significant within her. And, and notice how personal and experiential her, her testimony was. He told me all about myself. You know, that may be something that is missing in our evangelism today. That I can tell you what Christ has done for me. Would you come and consider what he can do for you? It's a very experiential thing. Notice that they believed in verse 20, in verse 39. uh, It says, and many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. You see how she didn't say, that it doesn't necessarily say that they believe because she said he, he was the Christ. No, it, it was a personal testimony of what Jesus Christ had done for her that caused this, they, I'm sure they considered who she was. But she was willing to say, I needed this. And here is what he did for me. And maybe this is why we, our, our evangelism lacks oomph. Because we, we, just, we may just go out there and preach that Jesus is the Christ. But have you ever considered a personal testimony of what Jesus means to you? And share that with your neighbor with your, in your ministry of reconciliation. That's what she did. Notice how effective her words were. Verse 39. And I I mentioned that. Many believed because of the word of this woman. I think that should excite us. Because we know we're needy like she was. The Lord blessed her words. We're needy like she. We have an opportunity to gather in fruit for eternity. We, we certainly do. Interestingly, how she, in a very sensitive manner, seemed to invite them to consider 
whether this was the Christ. She was not that bold to assert that he was the Christ, but she brought this out. So the Samaritans came, as we consider the response of the Samaritans to this encounter, the Samaritans came to him by invitation and testimony of this woman. But at the end of this passage, it became personal for them as well. You see that. Now we have heard and know that this to be true. They urged him to stay with them, and after a two-day stay, many more believed because of his word. And they just very clearly said, We now know, not because you said so to the woman, but because we have heard him ourselves and have know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Not just the Savior of the Jews, but the Savior of the Gentiles, the Savior of the world. What a glorious statement of exaltation to Christ this is. And so this passage, as, as we kind of sum this up, this passage lays on each of us three reasons for evangelism. And the first is the command or the will of the Father. As we see, the will of Him who sent me. Well, you might say, well, that's speaking about Jesus. Well, Jesus says this in John 17. He says it in verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Now that is pretty much a clear statement that as the Son of God had a mission to come here and seek out those who were lost in the ministry of reconciliation, now we are sent to engage in this same work. The command or the will of the Father is that First reason. Secondly, is the ripeness of the harvest, i.e., the need of sinners. Behold, lift up your eyes. Isn't this world a wretched state? There's a great need for us to enter into this work of reconciliation. If we just look here on the horizontal and we consider the people around us, there's a great need. The harvest, the field is white for harvest. Thirdly, a reason for us that is laid on, this pa- on us by this passage to enter into this work of evangelism or this ministry of reconciliation, the exaltation of Christ. There is hardly any greater reason. But the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Wasn't it the two Moravian brothers who said, when they left, never to return, they left for, the, for Africa, I believe. And as they, as they were leaving the port, I believe it was that they said, I haven't read it in such a long time, that may Christ receive the glory He deserves. And truly, would the Christ would be exalted in the lives of all these deniers and all these who deny Christ now. Would it not be that that would it not be great if Christ would be exalted in their eyes and in their lips and that they would they would be glorifying the savior of the world. The exaltation of Christ is one of the greatest reasons for us to enter into this work of reconciliation. And so we have these words of Christ. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes. Lift up our eyes, church, and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. Let me give you Peter's perspective in 1 Peter 3.15 in closing. Peter, the apostle, in 1 Peter 3.15 says this way, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. 
Now, there's an alternate reading. My center column would read this way. But set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. The problem, I think, largely that we face in not entering into this work is because we do not set Christ apart in our hearts as Lord. Does Christ have a right to ask this of you? Of course he does. Of course he does. And Peter tells us that we should set apart, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Or set apart, that's, the, what, the, that's what the word sanctify means. Set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts and then be ready. Consider Christ as Lord of your life. And now you're ready to give a reason, a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. Well, may we consider this portion of Scripture in John 4 as a, not only as a, an example from our Lord, but as a reminder to us how we were sought out, how He came and sought me out, and now he is asking me to enter into this work with him. Well, thank you for your attention, and uh, we will be dismissed.